Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, namely our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. Uh, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was a little uh, over seven years ago in August uh, 2015 when our congregation joined the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and providentially on the Sunday that we were formally received into the EPC, I celebrated my 10th anniversary as the pastor of this congregation. I was actually sitting over here on one of these side pews next to Jerry Iamuri, one of the uh, big honchos from the EPC who was part of the service. And we were chatting over there uh, during a lull in the service, and he was telling me about how he had just finished his doctor of ministry degree. He said that the, the degree had kept him sharp and it had forced him to do the reading that pastors so often give up in the busyness of leading a congregation week after week. He was glad for the experience, but boy, oh boy, was he glad that it was done. Now later in that service, just before I gave the benediction, a delegation commandeered the microphone. They had an announcement they wanted to make, an announcement that I had not been consulted on, which is against the rules. And the announcement was that this congregation, in recognition of my 10 years of service, was going to send me to Reformed Theological Seminary to do a doctorate of ministry degree myself. And so, for the next four years, I took two classes 
per year. Our class was great. I couldn't believe how good my professors were, good scholars, but also good pastors and good men. I had gone to Princeton for uh, my Master of Divinity, and I was with brothers who were so far ahead of me, I felt like I needed to take a remedial class. And when those four years were done and out of the way, with the, co- the coursework completed, then it was time for me to begin work on my, my dissertation. In a perfect world, in my plan, that dissertation was going to take two years, but in a perfect world and in my plan, there is no COVID. And what happened, in fact, was that the extra work and the extra stress of keeping this church moving during the pandemic put my dissertation on the back burner. And that meant that I fell two years behind the schedule that I had in mind when I started. But thanks to Pastor Bruno, uh, by giving me some relief from my preaching schedule this summer, I was able to jumpstart my dissertation, and now the end is in sight. I am on track to submit my first draft to my advisor on December 31st, 2022, and if all goes well, I will be flying down to Orlando in May 2023 to receive my degree. Now, as part of my dissertation, as an appendix to the dissertation, I'm writing a history of this congregation. We as Bible-believing Christians are familiar with the history of God's mighty deeds that are recorded for us in the Bible, but the truth of the matter is, is that God did not stop working with his people when the Bible was finished. And our duty as Christians is to continue to sing the praises of what God is doing in our day and in our life, which is why I believe that the church needs to be in an ongoing process of telling its story and telling its history. The history of Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church that I am writing is not a typical church history. Many, many congregations have written histories of themselves. I've read a whole bunch of them, and most of them are incredibly dull. Most of them are just lists of buildings that they've built and victories and victories without struggles or conflict. In the average history of the First Presbyterian Church of wherever, all the deacons are strong and all the elders are good-looking. And all the preachers are above average. In other words, the average history of the average First Presbyterian church reads like the history of a church that you and I have never attended. My hope is to write a real history of a real church, a church of regular people, a church of saints and sinners, a church in which God is the hero who brings life and meaning to his people. Two of the things that you see more clearly as you study history are, number one, God does not change. And God's truth does not change. If it was true a thousand years ago, it's still true today. And number two, 
people are basically the same. Technology changes, societies change, but human nature basically remains the same no matter what century or what country you're born into. God made us, God designed us to find our satisfaction and our purpose in, uh, in him. We are never happy, we're never content until we have a restored relationship with God. We're born into a broken situation, we're born as fallen people, so we're born not having a relationship with God. We must get a relationship with God if we're to have a relationship with God. And God in every century and in every country calls people to be in a relationship with him. And with those people, those ordinary people, those people like you and me, God does extraordinary things. He did it when he called Moses and when he called David and when he called Mary and when he called John and when he called Paul and when he called Priscilla and Aquila. And he does it today when he calls you. Each one of us has a divine history. Each one of us has a history with God and your story, including the fact that you are here this morning and not at the Starbucks. Each part of your story is part of God's history of planet Earth. And that's the history I'm going to try to write about this congregation. A history of an ordinary people called by an extraordinary God. Now, one of the technical issues that you have to deal with when you are writing a formal history, an academic history, is the reliability of your sources. Just because someone says something doesn't mean that it's true. Just because something was written in a newspaper doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be checked against other sources. That's why in the Bible, the testimony of one person is not enough to convict someone of a crime. There need to be more witnesses. The witnesses need to agree with each other. There have been stories told to me, interesting stories, stories told to me by trustworthy people that I have not included in the history that I'm writing because I could not find someone else or some other document to corroborate the story. I think that it's better to be careful and say too little than to be reckless and say too much. One of the reasons, by the way, that we trust the historical accuracy of the New Testament accounts of Jesus is that there were so many witnesses, so many people, each seeing things from their own little point of view, but saying the same thing. Now, I'm mentioning all of those things this morning because not only do I want you to attend uh, my Sunday school class, we met for the first time today, we talked about the revival that led to the formation of this church and a little bit about our first pastor, but I'm going to be having this class for the next five weeks and I want you to be there. You're going to have to come in an hour earlier, but it'll be good for you. Um, I want you to come because we're going to be talking about some of the highlights uh, in the history of this congregation. But in our reading from 1 John uh, this morning, we see the apostle wrestling with some of these same questions about how it is that we trust the testimony that's been given about Jesus. 
Of course, no rational person would deny that there was someone named Jesus of Nazareth who lived about 2,000 years ago. We have more historical evidence for Jesus than we do for some of the Roman emperors whom no one would even bother to consider denying. But as Christians, as people of faith, we're not just saying that there was a Jesus. We're not just saying that he was a rabbi in Palestine and that he was executed by the rabbis. You can be an atheist and believe those things. Jesus, after all, wasn't the only rabbi to be killed by the Romans. What's important is not that there was a Jesus. What is important is who this Jesus was in a cosmic sense, in a universal sense, in terms of all of human history and all of divine history. And that raises the question for us, how is it that we know who Jesus is? That's part of the question that John is wrestling with in this passage that we read from 1 John. John tells us, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He also tells us that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So if you believe in Christ, you also are someone who's overcome the world. But what I want you to notice in there is is that believing in Christ is a function of what God does for us. He doesn't say that everyone who has read all of the evidence or that everyone who has gone to all of the lectures believes that Jesus is the Christ. He says that everyone who believes in the Christ is someone who's been born of God. Well, who does the borning from God? Well, it's God himself. We don't, we don't give birth to ourselves. Our parents give birth to us. And if we've been born of God, that's something that God the Father did for us. And one of the consequences of that is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then John talks about who is it that testifies to Jesus being the Christ. Of course, the apostles all testify that Jesus is the Christ. You remember that Peter was the first uh, apostle to give this testimony. In fact, he's the first human being to give this testimony. That's there in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus is, uh, I guess he's He's talking to his disciples about what people are saying about him. Who do people say that I am? And well, you know, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. Some people that you're saying that you're Elijah. But then Jesus asks the real question, well, uh, that's nice. That's That's what the polls are reporting. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, first among all people, says... You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you all remember what it is that Jesus says in response to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter doesn't know that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God because of something that somebody told him. It's not because he read the evidence. He believes it because God revealed it to him. And what was true of Peter will be true of you. 
All of you have read the scriptures. All of you have heard a thousand sermons. None of those are what make you believe. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't called to constantly bear witness. But in addition to that evidence that humans bring, there has to be the spark from the Holy Spirit that wakens you, that illuminates your mind, that allows you to receive uh, what it is that you need to hear. I mean, I went to a seminary with professors who understood the scriptures, who had, who had the New Testament memorized, but did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. You can, you can have read all of the evidence and still come to the wrong conclusion. If you have come to the right conclusion, it's because God did a work in your life. So what is the point that John is making here? It's not human testimony that matters, although we should continue to testify, but rather it is the testimony of God. So what I want to do this morning as we prepare ourselves to come to this table this morning, I want to take a look at a number of very familiar passages from the Gospels where Jesus talks about who he is, okay? Let's not listen to what Dan Morrison or the Apostle Paul or St. Augustine says about who Jesus is. Let's see what Jesus says about himself because Jesus bears witness to who, to who he is. So I'm going to run through a whole litany of things. Let me begin in John 10, 24. Jesus announces this amazing fact that he is the person who grants eternal life. Think about that. Is this not the person that you want to meet? Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Who is it that gives eternal life? According to Jesus, it's he himself who gives eternal life. Jesus' report about himself. John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says that he, I don't, I don't know how to explain this without getting into Trinitarian trouble. He and God the Father, yeah, they're, yeah. they're inseparable. They're always together. They've always been together. They will always be together. What the one thinks, the other thinks. What the one says, the other says. Where the one is, the other is. They're one. Who says that about Jesus? Jesus says that about Jesus. Mark 2, 10. This is the story where Jesus raised, there's a, a, a paralyzed man and they're you know, hoping that Jesus is going to heal him. And... <laughs> Rather than saying, be healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. And, of course, people flip out. How can you forgive sins? You're just a human. And Jesus says about himself, the Son of Man, I have authority to forgive sins. You're looking for sins to be forgiven? Go to Jesus. You're looking for eternal life? Go to Jesus. You're looking to be with God, the Father? Go to Jesus. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. We have a, a culture that we're, we're living. No, this is all times and all places. We live among people who are starving. They're longing for something. They're hungry for something. They're dissatisfied. They're always discontent with where they are. If I only had this, then things would be well by me. And Jesus says, well, actually, the thing that you're hungry for is me. And if you eat of me, you're never going to hunger again. The thing that you're thirsty for, the thing that's driving you nuts, that has you pursuing one thing after another, well, in fact, it's me. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. John 8, 24. Jesus insists that he is the only one who can forgive sins, that provides forgiveness of sins. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. All right, so Jesus is the one who forgives sins, but if you go to anyone else to get forgiveness of your sins, if you go to your psychotherapist looking for forgiveness of your sins, you're still going to die in your sins. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, I mean, this is, a, this is one of the, the images of Jesus that I think that we love best, Jesus as the shepherd, because, you know, it's a very gentle, a caring image. He's borrowing, actually, Old Testament imagery because Yahweh identifies himself as the shepherd of Israel, the protector of the people of God, and Jesus Mm, says, you know, you remember that shepherd in the Old Testament who protects his people? Uh-huh, that's me. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. All of us who have been called to believe in Christ have been called to join the church. There are no freelance Christians, Okay. To be a follower of Christ means to be grafted into the vine. The vine is Jesus, all right? And the Father gets to do the, the vine dressing. John 5, 23, Jesus says that if we reject him, we reject God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 8, 59, talk, take, uh, Jesus actually takes for himself the name of God. So you know that the name of God is so holy that observant Jews don't say it out loud. Okay, so the name, I'm going to say it, the name of God is Yahweh. All right, it was revealed to Moses God reveals his name to Moses, I am. We read that in our Old Testament reading this morning. God reveals his name. Who, who, who is it that sent, sent me? I am, I am sent you, I am. Okay, Yahweh, all right. Observant Jews won't say the name for fear of profaning it in some way, and so they'll use some other formula. They'll, they'll, call, they'll call God the Lord, or they'll, or they'll say the name, blessed be the name, rather than bless God, okay, um, Jesus takes that name for himself. Here's this, this passage that absolutely flipped people out when it happened. This is John 8, 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Whew. 
okay? <laughs> they, uh, they were ready to tear him piece, into pieces right then to take the name of God on himself. John 4, 10. Jesus says to the woman at the well, you remember the Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. God, uh, Jesus gives us the bread of life and he gives us the water of life as well. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who would follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 5, 22, Jesus declares that he is the one who is going to be the judge at the end of time. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, there is the promise of the coming day of the Lord when the God is going to show up and God is going to judge all of humankind. It's going to be a, a, a day of terror for those who are unrighteous. It's going to be a day of redemption for those who are in Christ. And guess who gets to do the judging? Not even the Father judges anyone, but the Father has given all judgment to the Son. All right? At the judgment throne, we meet Jesus. Well, actually, everybody meets Jesus. John 3, 36. Jesus says that if we reject him, we will incur God's wrath. Reject Jesus and incur God's wrath. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Look, we cannot, we cannot be indifferent about the claims of Christ. You can't say, well, you know, that's nice that those people believe in Christ, but, you know, I'm, I'm just not that interested. It's, it's not that important for me. If you are indifferent to Christ, if you have not received Christ, if you have not bent your knee to Christ, then you are under the wrath of God. I don't know what to say about it. It's just, it's just what Jesus says, all right? So the wrath of God is demonstrated against all humankind because of our unrighteousness and only those who were covered by the blood of Christ escape that wrath. And so we can't neutrally reject Christ and say, you know, we're just kind of indifferent to that matter and God will say, well, I'll be indifferent toward you. It's not, it's not how it works. John 10, 9 Jesus says that he's the door to salvation. I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. Jesus says not only that he's the door, but he's the only door. I am the way. And yes, the definite article appears in the original. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Jesus, of course, taught his disciples, and they then went on to teach other people. There is this wonderful scene uh, in Acts chapter 4 where uh, Peter and John are hauled before uh, the Jewish council, uh, and they give a defense of themselves. And they say to the council, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, 
the builders, and it has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay. The, ex- the claims of Jesus are huge, and they are exclusive. C.S. Lewis, a professor of literature at Oxford, uh, gave a series of lectures on the radio uh, during World War II. And in one of those lectures, he makes a logical point, which I, I think is, uh, is worth noting. Here's what Lewis said. Lewis said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You have to make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he is a madman or something worse. Jesus says such extraordinary things about himself. Jesus bears witness to himself. We who are in Christ receive that witness. We don't believe it because we're smarter than anyone else. We believe it because Uh, somehow, mysteriously, I don't know exactly how it works, God sends us the Holy Spirit and some part of our brain or our heart opens up and we go, oh, I get it. The light goes on and and we believe it. For those of you who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, this table has been laid for you. As you receive these humble elements today, we are following his command. We are reenacting his last supper. And as you receive those elements, let that be your testimony that you are a believer and a follower of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. And we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might see. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.